Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code, the management consultancy for what happens next. For more information, you can visit heroncode.com. In this podcast, we will be talking to female leaders of today to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. One of the key takeaways from American culture at the time was for me two values that are cemented in how I pursue things even today, which is gender equality and also education. When I went to college, I said, no, let me be a a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I went pre-med and then by uh, coincidentally, I took a course in sociology. I'm like, wait, that's what I want. I want to change the world. The visionary that really I look up to is His Excellency Amr al-Dabbaq because he's the chairman of a Dabbaq group and he is like Simon Sinek or like Bill Gates or, you know, he's the Saudi version of it. Men do it for, for each other. They support each other. They, they uh, you know, uh, they try to find if there's a good opportunity, they help each other out. They always talk good about each other. Mm-hmm. So, so I think women need to do that more as well. Let's let the strengths of the woman be the, you know, where she can rely on her strengths rather than trying to fit a mold that it's really hard to fit into. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code. Welcome back. Another episode of the Heron Code Women and Leadership podcast, where season by season, we get stronger and stronger guests who share their journeys and stories with us. And Hoping you're enjoying it so far because I certainly am. Uh, It's such a pleasure for me to sit here and speak to individuals from all different backgrounds and really learn how they got to where they are today. And today is absolutely no different. I'm joined by Haifa Abu Zabiba, and she has 24 years' experience in human capital, which is spanning various industries, including finance, real estate, retail, automotive sectors in the private and family owned business space. She's a graduate from California State University in LA and has completed graduate level management and leadership courses at both Harvard and INSEAD. Uh, Haifa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here because you have such an interesting journey of going all over the world and experiencing so much and, and carving your journey from a strong foundation of where you are from. So I'd like to start from there, if, if, you, would, if you would allow me to. Uh, your background, born and semi-raised in Saudi Arabia, am I right? Uh, and tell me how, how that was for you growing up in Saudi. Well, I mean, growing, I'm a Saudi mm-hmm. and growing up in Saudi was uh, very uh, home to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, I was born into just a normal family. Uh, my father worked in Saudi Airlines. He was, uh, I think, assistant GM or something. And uh, I, I stayed here until fifth grade. And then in that year, it was a transitionary year for us because my father retired early. And then he wanted to pursue his education in the States. And so we moved up. Uh, I have, uh, we're a family of six uh, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. Uh, we moved to the States. We just packed and left uh, over there. And uh, so it, it was a big shock. At the time, I only knew a few words in uh, English, like yes and no. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was uh, a big transition. Uh, we went to initially in an Islamic school, which uh, is, um, uh, it was a good uh, decision from my dad to go there because uh, it, it, it taught us both the English side and it kept the Saudi Arabic uh, religion side. And so after that, I continued until I finished my uh, bachelor degree in California mm-hmm. State University, Los Angeles. And 
For me, uh, I mean, it was a different world back then. One of the key takeaways from American culture at the time was for me two values that are cemented in how I pursue things even today, which is gender equality and also education. And to this day, I pursue education. I recently finished my uh, MBA here at Holt International Business School in UAE because this is something that I feel is, is uh, something that we need to continue with. It's an interesting story because for me, I was born uh, and raised in London, however, Indian heritage, right? And I always felt like such a hybrid. I never knew where I belonged, so to say. I was British, but I didn't feel British enough. I was Indian, but I didn't feel Indian enough. How did you feel? You were young. You were, you know, immersed into this uh, American culture, a very, very different culture. What was that for you? What was that like? So it, it was it was quite tough. Because when I went there, sixth grade, uh, we were in this Islamic school. And then from seventh grade onward, we moved to public schools. Mm -hmm. And at the time, public schools, really great education, uh, quality of education. And it was a tough age. And also at the time, my parents got divorced. My mom did not transition well in the States. So she came back to Saudi Arabia. And uh, so with that, plus being a teenager was quite difficult. And my name Uzabiba was really difficult to pronounce. The other students, I mean, they, I had friends, mm. but I sort of stuck out, you know, because mm. I didn't know a lot of English at the time. And so that whole transition was very challenging. But I think it was part of what they call today building character. Mm -hmm. So it, it was good. It just made me who I am today, more resilient. And I think that's important, you know, in, uh, because life doesn't just come and, and give you everything the way you want. And also when I came back to the Saudi Arabia, so after I finished my bachelor degree, I came back to work in Saudi Arabia. My whole career was in, in Saudi Arabia. And the, the interesting part is I felt the same awkwardness, you mm. know, the same out of place. I didn't fit in there. I, I thought I would fit in here, but also I didn't fit in here because like uh, people went, they evolved. And for, in my mind, I still had the program of when, right when I left. Mm -hmm. So uh, I needed to do, a, you know, um, an updated version. <laughs> yeah. It took me a few years to get that uh, mm. down. But I think all in all, it, it's just it, it's just part of growth and part of learning. And I think all in all, I had more because I had now two cultures instead mm. of one. So I think it, in a, it, it was a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you were exposed to more. You got to understand other people, other backgrounds a lot more. How much do you think that's come into use to what you do today? It made me more empathetic, I think, mm. because then I'm able to understand, I mean, a lot of things, being a Saudi, being a woman, being raised in the States, getting to know a lot of nationalities. Because in America, you don't really think, okay, Saudis, you just think, okay, like, Muslim American. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of friends. Uh, I'd go to the mosque every week. So I had a lot of friends from Pakistan, from Arab countries, origins. And it was it was nice. It was nice to have that sort of diversity. Mm. And this is where, like, I thought always, like, equality is, is a big deal for me. And I always think, okay, no, let's make things equal. Even though, okay, for as a woman, it's good to have uh, more focus on gender diversity. But I think 
it's more than that. It's even for the men, ensuring that there's fairness mm-hmm. uh, for them as well. So I think equal opportunity applies to everybody as long as you have objective processes, objective approaches and frameworks. Then you can guarantee that people will really have a fair shot at success. Mm. Now, before you began your career in, in when you went back to Saudi, did you have an idea or a dream of what you wanted to be when you were older? I always ha- kept changing my mind. Yeah. Uh, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to college, I said, no, let me be a, a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I went pre-med. And then by uh, coincidentally, I took a course in sociology. I'm like, wait, that's what I want. I want to change the world. Mm. And so when uh, I finished my sociology degree, I came back. I was like, okay, now I need to find a job. What's there to do? Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the options was... HR at this time, it was called personnel. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, there was only the education sector and the health sector. So mm-hmm. there was there was nothing else at mm-hmm. the time open for women, which is now is a blessing that there's such a huge opportunity uh, there for women uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. At the time, it was still limited. It was still not uh, where it is today. And I think I chose the health sector because I thought the education field was was not me. And it was a good decision because I went in in HR. I was recruiting doctors and nurses in a hospital. It was it was a really nice job to have. And then I just kept going in HR further in different industries, the ones you mentioned earlier. And I think that's the part where uh, I had a couple of sort of detours. But then I always came back to HR because mm-hmm. I think um, innately I felt this is where my real talent lies and where I can offer value. Mm. Now, HR, there is, I mean, in, in half in half the saying of human resources is the human, right? And that is, it takes a lot of uh, personal characteristics and qualities that need to come through in order to conduct a job and your role within HR. You mentioned a word earlier, empathy. You're driven by it. It's something that you live by personally and professionally. How important has that been as a part of everything that you do and the decisions you make when it comes to your career and the way that you treat your team and the people around you? Well, I think dealing with people in in a work environment is a a work in progress always Mm. because, I mean, I started beginning of the ladder and then as I grew into more leadership roles, in the beginning, I was more, it took me a while to shift how I look at the team. So when I was the team, like Mm -hmm. the team member, it's different because it's all about performing. It's all about delivering quick, fast, high quality. And so when when the table, when I became the leader now, I expected the same out of mm. the team. And it took me a while to understand that people are different. They offer different things. So someone might be faster. Someone might be smarter. Someone might be more quality. If someone does not deliver something, maybe they don't have the resources. Maybe they need to, some development too. So I think that was the shift that made me really become empathetic and understanding. Now, when someone in the team doesn't deliver or give me something in a, in a pace that I think, Mm-hmm. I understand that uh, there's something else here. I need to just check in with them, ask them, you know, is there something I can do? Whereas before I was like, when are you going to deliver this? Which mm-hmm. is not the right approach at all, because then it's more, uh, it's assuming the other person is doesn't want to do their job, which mm-hmm. is not true. Mm-hmm. All of us, we want to offer value. All of us, we want to have meaningful jobs. All of us, we want to feel like we're making a difference in in one way or another in the world. And this is where I think it's important for leaders to shift. Now, 
there's that part. But then there's also, okay, how do we deal with each other as a team? Because you have people coming from different walks of life. And some people might be more calmer. Some people might be more assertive. Some people might be used to a different level. So how do we get everyone to behave together and communicate together in a way that is comfortable with everybody? And this is one of the things that I like about uh, the Buck Group, which is where I work right now. It really emphasizes the culture piece, the culture side. Uh, because in the end, this is what matters, what mm-hmm. differentiates company from a different company. Sometimes, you know, uh, we think that if a company pays more to an individual, then that's it. But really, there's, there's a tax that they don't tell you about, which is the mental healthness that now is becoming a key topic. And also the, the peace of mind that people have, their health. I've seen it before my eyes in companies. Some colleagues or employees would have a a nervous breakdown because Mm -hmm. they had a really bad manager. Mm -hmm. So the tax that a person pays for higher pay in an unhealthy environment is huge. It comes out of their own years of living, and it's really not a good return on investment. Picking a company with the right culture is important. Like in at the Buck Group, we have omnipreneurship. And omnipreneurship, this is a culture that is based on three principles, uh, giving, earning, sustaining, which ensures balance that a company doesn't just focus on the financial part, but it factors in the community, it factors in the planet. And also five values like integrity, respect, teamwork, forward thinking, passion. And these are the key ingredients of how people need to be behaving together. I mean, who's who doesn't want to be in a company like that? Mm-hmm. And then this is what matters. And, and also ensuring that overall, the colleagues, which we don't call employees, we, co- we call our colleagues, colleagues, that when they wake up in the morning, they want to come to work. They feel excited that like mm-hmm. they're going to do something meaningful. They're going to add value. This is the kind of environment and culture that we want for everyone to have in, in the group. Mm. And when you're speaking of this, Haifa, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, of course, this should be basic 101, the bare minimum that should be within the culture of a company. That mind shift has really changed, especially since COVID, definitely more of a, a wake up call to companies and, you know, people within those companies to understand that this is a very, very important, important part of creating good and positive results personally and professionally. So with that outlook, with that culture within your company, what has the results been? Can you share with us the the positive impact it's had? Of course, one of the results that we had this year at the Bach Group was uh, named number one great place to work in Saudi Arabia, number three in UAE, number three in Bahrain, and also all over the world in the UK. You know, we were listed in in several uh, countries. So this is something that we really take seriously. And I think all in all, uh, you say, okay, what's what's the benefit of a culture? And I tell you what isn't the benefit of the culture. Mm. Culture enhances productivity. It enhances profitability in the company. It increases the share price of the stocks in the company. It also has a people more engaged in the company. It, it has them performing better, more productive. It increases also the ideas that are being generated from innovation. And uh, this also works towards improving the revenue in the company. Mm. Uh, so all of these benefits, they come in and it's all plus 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 now you tell me okay this is we hear we heard it all before what's different now it's about leaders walking the talk mm. i've been in companies where some ceos they would sit and say yeah people are important assets but then in the next meeting they go and do something that does not fall in line with that whereas here we have our ceo chairman he is walking the talk he is mm. actually applying these values in all that he does 
And then this even forces us as as leadership team to also follow in his footsteps and, and do the same. And I think this is where it's, it starts at the top. Culture mm. always starts at the top. Mm. And you can really see the, the impact that it then has because then everyone wins, you know, across the board. It's a win-win for everyone. And that's the most important thing. Now, something, Hafer, that you have spoken about uh, already uh, in this episode is about your yearning and belief of constantly learning. And this is something that you have proven in all the countless things that you have done, you know, even going back to doing an EMBA uh, of business analytics from Holt that you spoke about earlier. Where does that come from? This yearning to learn constantly and that you are never a finished product. There's always something else to learn. I think the learning piece comes out of necessity because, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a huge challenge in front of us. We need to do things that we, we were never asked to do. Like five years ago, now this year, we have to do things that we weren't there five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, with the release of the new technology, the new, all of the new uh, terms, all of the new jobs and the new challenges. In order to be able to navigate through that, learning becomes a must. Mm-hmm. Uh, because how else are we going to keep up with all the changes that are happening around us in the business landscape? And so this is where it's important to really continuously try to figure out what you need to learn and quickly do it. Mm. And also it's part of being humble. We all have blind spots. I mean, we could come here and sit and say, no, I'm perfect, but really none of us are. Mm -mm. So we need to just reflect. It takes feedback from people we trust, people that really, they they want us to succeed and they give Mm. us feedback. It's important to, to hear them out and listen and see, okay, what do I need to change? Where can I improve? And then the minute we start addressing these blind spots, we will find that new doors will open to us, new opportunities that come to our the horizon that weren't there before just because we adjusted, we improved. Mm. And so this is where it's important. Some people might be too shy. Some people might be too assertive. Some people might need to improve their communication skills. Just it's important to identify what is the blind spot and then work hard at becoming the best that, that you can at that. And also figure out your talent and really be the best at it. Mm-hmm. Um, take it like, like a craft. So this, it always shows up. Like if, if you're going to be an astronaut, be the best astronaut. If you're going to be in HR, be the best HR mm-hmm. there is. If you're going to be in marketing, be the best marketeer there could be. And I think the more that we really raise to this level of excellence, the more we find there's no competition. Because when you are really working at the best place you can be, then you will be able to do things at a new level. And this is a success for everybody. And, and if, if you talk to any top talent, uh, high performers, and because we're in HR, we talk a lot about talent and what it takes like to be, for example, top performers in a company, a high potential, high performers. And it always comes to that. People skills and being the best that they can be at the uh, their their talent. And I think the more a person works on that and focuses on that instead of other things. Like there's some some people that might go in the different direction, like self-sabotage or something like that. It's important to really focus on the person and how to become better than they were from the day before, mm-hmm. rather than looking left and right 
I remember I learned this from Oprah and one of my big heroes is Oprah Winfrey. And she always said that, you know, competition, it's its not about competing with the competition. It's really about competing, competing with yourself. And several people since then have also said the same message. And it is true. The more we compete with ourselves rather than with others, the more we realize that we're actually uh, focusing where we need to focus. We're improving where we need to improve and that we're getting new opportunities that were not there before. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned Oprah and in context of what we're talking about, because as a host and a presenter, I study the people that I looked up, look up to, Oprah being one of them to the T, you know, if she's doing an interview with Harry and Meghan, all I'm watching is Oprah. I'm not watching Harry and Meghan. And so for you in your industry, as you were, you know, starting off as a team member all the way through to leadership roles, did you have a mentor? Did you have people that you looked to that, that inspired you and guided you in the right direction? That's a good question. I mean, my father was my first hero, uh, mm. obviously, because I always went to him. He was my mentor, my number one mentor. He passed away a few years ago, but uh, he really um, was the first guide for me in life. So for me, my father is my hero. Mm. When I think of external people, I remember one of the, not when I was growing up, but, but uh, recently, because I've been in organizations and it was a different time. So all this, you know, keeping people happy, keeping people uh, inspired, engaged was not on the table. You know, mm. people came to work and you get a salary for it and you should be thankful. Mm. And you just do whatever the manager tells you to do. That was the culture when I first started my, my career. And so the first person that really started resonating with, you know, saying a message that resonated with me is Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. Because he was talking about businesses, about people, first understand the why, leadership, what it really is about. It's about sacrifice. It's about understanding. It's about communicating what is the why and then the what rather than focusing on the what and uh, not uh, explaining the Because then you attract people. who And it, it really started me thinking about what I need to do. You know, I, I was at the time focusing on the what needs to be done. And also I had an example, okay, of, of what a culture could be in a company. So I think Simon Sinek would be one of the people that especially related to culture is, is there. In Saudi Arabia, the, the visionary that really I look up to is His Excellency Amr al-Dabbagh. Because he's the chairman of a Dabar group and he is like Simon Sinek or like mm. Bill Gates or, you know, he's the Saudi version of it. So it, it was it was nice to find a leader who is a visionary that can be also I can look up to who is the same nationality as mm. me. I could identify more and he came up in the same country and he is, is an extraordinary leader as well. Mm. And on leaders, I mean, it's tough to be a leader. People just see the finished product. They see the person at the top of the chain. It's tough being a leader, but on top of that, it's tough being a woman leader. There are so many challenges that that arise that, that most don't need to encounter. Uh, I wonder if that has been a journey that has been the same for you, that, you know, being a woman in a leadership role has come along with its ups and downs, its pros and cons, and the challenges that you have come across that you have then overcame that you can share with our audience. Challenges. As a woman leader, everything is harder. Leadership rules were written by men. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is, is I had to live up to standards that did not factor in being a woman in, as part of the formula. And so this is where it was hard for me, for example, to be authentic. I, I had to shift to be a man when I was at work. 
uh, and now even they call it the masculine. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You you have to shift and, and, and focus on the work and become tough. But then at the same time, because I'm a woman, I couldn't be as tough as men. I had to also be, you know, having some of the skills that women have are, are famous for. So it was quite challenging trying to be a leader uh, with that kind of paradigm. And I think when I think about being a woman leader, it was also tough because, for example, you're a leader at work, but you go home and then you have to figure out the family part, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, once you have children or you have to figure out all those things. So it even becomes harder to be a leader because you're working at work. You have to figure out the, the family puzzle. And then you, you know, you need to also find time for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole, the whole idea was quite challenging until I made a decision that, okay, I'm not going to look for work-life balance. That's it. Mm-hmm. I will try to make the best out of this. So you got to make decisions. Okay, what's important? What matters? Remove the things that are excess in order to be able just to function mm-hmm. um, and to meet the, the expectation of the key stakeholders. So, you know, the key people that matter in your life. For women, there's another piece as leaders. It's important to also support each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I felt was alone sometimes, because as a woman, you find first you're happy. You meet a woman. uh, Oh, now we can, you know, support each other. But then it turns very competitive and you don't feel that support. And it's two way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying no. It's just everyone is focusing on themselves, on their success. And I think what I found is that it's important to support other women mm-hmm. and to really find ways because men do it. Men do it for, for each other. They support each other. They, they uh, you know, uh, they try to find if there's a good opportunity, they help each other out. They always talk good about each other. Mm-hmm. So, so I think women need to do that more as well. I think now women are understanding this more, mm-hmm. especially the younger generations. I, f- I see there's more camaraderie. And this is this is important. It's important also for women leaders to support younger women and really try to find how to help them not to be like them, but to navigate the 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 work environment better, navigate the tough decisions. You know, if a woman gets married, how does she manage that if if she has to leave her job? You know, balancing these life questions and just being there as a guide rather than telling them what to do. They they can figure that out for themselves, mm-hmm. but just to sort of uh, mentor them or coach them on on how to come to a decision. Yeah. And, I, and back to the work-life balance thing. I think it's interesting because it was such a, it was a movement that was pushed for so long. And now people are realizing there is no such thing, which you rightly pointed out. It is not one size fits all. It's not that you have to find this happy medium between the two. And everyone's situation is is absolutely different. And and so for you, when it comes to that work-life balance personally and professionally, what are certain things or techniques or ways that you are able to switch off from being this woman in a huge leadership role to then coming home and just wanting to be normal? How are you able to, you know, I guess, compartmentalize the two? I think compartmentalizing is not possible. possible. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of studies in Gartner that say the same thing. Mm. Basically, it's it's now about family life, work life blend mm. uh, rather than balance because you're not going to have the balance. It, it, if, if you need, like uh, you have deadlines at work, then, okay, you're going to be focusing more on work at that time. 
if there's some things happening on the family side, you need to focus more on that and relax a little bit on the work. And it's all about just trying to make the best out of what is the current context. It, people go through different life stages. Mm. Like if they have younger children, it's different than they have older children. Then if they don't have any children, it's so I think it's like you said, there's not a one size fits all. Mm. Every situation is different. And even if like for single women, like sometimes people think, okay, single women, they have nothing to do. No, they could have a parent that they're taking care of or siblings. So it's important to be able to identify what are the situations and then uh, ask like colleagues, okay, uh, what will work for you? What, Mm. how can we support? I think that's, that's what matters uh, in these things. Uh, Like for example, uh, women who have younger children, toddlers. it's really important for them to have more time at home. Mm -hmm. So maybe some companies can find a way that for a limited, uh, you know, during those years to give uh, women a little bit of extra time of working remotely in order to be able to manage the the more need at, at home. And I think companies that manage to do these things will get the loyalty of mm. the women and then they'll be able to have them progress across the organizations. A lot of time in companies, there's challenges. And this is not just in this region or in Saudi Arabia, or it's, it's a global situation where companies are struggling. How can we increase the number of women at the top? You know, according to a recent Gartner report, there's about 41% of women And as you go up in the ladder, it becomes quite less. Mm. So then how can companies manage to do this? And Gartner proposes like three key ideas, which I agree with. Uh, One is to ensure that the employee value proposition factors in women's needs as well. And you might say, well, what do women want? They want respect, first of all, to be seen as a contributing member to the company. They want work-life balance. Uh, especially during the years when it uh, it's it's essential. And then also they want managers that understand them and that really uh, give them opportunities to grow. And so this is something that companies can do. Work process, talent processes, like succession planning, like uh, hiring processes, mm-hmm. performance management, all of these also need to be like re- visited to remove any biases. We all know there's biases. So we need to, companies just need to go back and and really try to identify steps to remove those biases. And the last thing is the authenticity that I spoke about early. There's no need for a woman to become a man to be successful. Mm -hmm. It's important to allow women to, to be themselves and they have their talent. So it's not like we look at leaders and say, okay, this is what a leader profile looks like. And as a woman, you need to change one, two, three. You need to be more businessy. You need to be more, you know, understand it, be more competitive, which some women are, and that's fine. But for other women, maybe they prefer the climate enhancing environment, uh, you know, role. Maybe they their talent is about networking and, 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 and leveraging that. So let's let the strengths of the woman be the, you know, where she can rely on her strengths rather than trying to fit a mold that it's really hard to fit into. Mm. And when those strengths are found and help to be enhanced, again, everyone's yeah. winning. Yes. And evaluate those jobs mm. that are related to that for the real value they bring to the table. These things and more and more, the people skills are becoming the essential part. So women who have those strengths and men who have those strengths, those jobs need to be evaluated at the same level as the competitiveness and the financial mm. roles. And I think the more we un- companies understand that and the more they put that, they will be able to leverage the talents of both men and women.
Mm. I think so many important takeaways from this episode, Haifa. I feel like not only companies listening, but individuals within those companies listening have got a lot from you and so many gems of wisdom that you have shared from your journey that they can learn from to potentially change the course of theirs. So I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and uh, I hopefully look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. It's thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code.